0: LearnOutLoud.com presents the U.S. President's Podcast. Each episode will provide a brief biographical portrait of a president, explore the eras in which they led their country, and assess the historical significance they hold for us today. This is a podcast for those who wish to gain a complete knowledge of the Commander-in-Chief. For a complete listing of our educational podcasts, including links to subscribe, please visit our website at www.LearnOutLoud.com podcast. John Adams by Wikipedia John Adams Jr. born October 30th 1735 died July 4th 1826 was the second president of the United States from 1797 to 1801 he also served as America's first vice president from 1789 to 1797 He was defeated for re-election in the Revolution of 1800 by Thomas Jefferson. Adams was also the first president to reside in the newly built White House in Washington, D.C., which was completed in 1800. Adams, a sponsor of the American Revolution in Massachusetts, was a driving force for independence in 1776. He represented the Continental Congress in Europe. He was a major negotiator of the eventual peace treaty with Great Britain and chiefly responsible for obtaining the loans from the Amsterdam money market necessary for the conduct of the revolution. His prestige secured his two elections as Washington's vice president and his election to succeed him. As president, he was frustrated by battles inside his own Federalist party against a faction led by Alexander Hamilton but he broke with them to avert a major conflict with France in 1798 during the Quasi-War Crisis. John Adams was the oldest of three brothers, born on October 30, 1735, in Braintree, Massachusetts, to John and Susanna Boylston Adams. The location of Adams' birth became part of Quincy, Massachusetts in 1792. His father, a farmer and a deacon, also named John, was a fourth-generation descendant of Henry Adams, who immigrated from Barton St. David, Somerset, England, to Massachusetts Bay Colony in about 1636. His mother, Suzuna Boylston Adams, was a descendant of one of the colony's most vigorous and successful families, the Boylston's of Brookline. Young John Adams went to Harvard College at age 16. His father expected him to become a minister, but Adams had doubts. After graduating in 1755, he taught school for a few years in Worcester, allowing himself to think about his career choice. After much reflection he decided to become a lawyer and studied law in the office of a prominent lawyer in Worcester by the name of James Putnam. From an early age, Adams developed the habit of writing descriptions of events and impressions of men which litter his diary, often recording cases he observed so that he could study and reflect upon them. In 1764, Adams married Abigail Smith the daughter of a Congressional minister, Reverend William Smith, at Weymouth, Massachusetts. Their children were Abigail, future President John Quincy, Susanna, Charles, Thomas Boylston, and Elizabeth, who was stillborn. Adams was not a popular leader like his second cousin, Samuel Adams. Instead, his influence emerged through his work as a constitutional lawyer and his intense analysis of historical examples, together with his thorough knowledge of the law and his dedication to the principles of republicanism, Adams often found his inborn contentiousness to be a restraint in his political career. Politics Opponent of Stamp Act 1765 Adams first rose to prominence as an opponent of the Stamp Act of 1765. Popular resistance, he later observed, was sparked by an oft-reprinted sermon of the Boston minister, Jonathan Mayhew, interpreting Romans 13 so as to elucidate the principle of just insurrection. In 1765, Adams drafted the instructions which were sent by the inhabitants of Braintree His representatives in the Massachusetts legislature, and which served as a model for other towns to draw up instructions to their representatives. In August 1765, he anonymously contributed four notable articles to the Boston Gazette, republished in the London Chronicle in 1768, as True Sentiments of America. In the letter, he suggested that there was a connection between the Protestant ideas that Adam's Puritan ancestors brought to New England, and the ideas behind their resistance to the Stamp Act. In the former, he explained that the opposition of the colonies to the Stamp Act was because the Stamp Act deprived the American colonists of two basic rights guaranteed to all Englishmen, and which all free men deserved. Rights to be taxed only by consent, and to be tried only by a jury of one's peers. The Braintree Instructions were a succinct and forthright defense of colonial rights and liberties, while the dissertation was an essay in political education. Boston Massacre, 1770. In 1770, a street confrontation resulted in British soldiers killing five civilians in what became known as the Boston Massacre. The soldiers involved, who were arrested on criminal charges, had trouble finding legal counsel. Finally, they asked Adams to defend them. Although he feared it would hurt his reputation, he agreed. Six of the soldiers were acquitted. Two who had fired directly into the crowd were charged with murder, but were convicted only of manslaughter. As for Adams' payment— Historian Chinard alleges that one of the soldiers, Captain Thomas Preston, gave Adams a symbolic single guinea as a retaining fee, the only fee he received in the case. However, David McCullough states in his biography of Adams that he received nothing more than a retainer of 18 guineas. Despite his previous misgivings, Adams was elected to the Massachusetts General Court colonial legislature in June of 1770, while still in preparation for the trial. Dispute Concerning Parliament's Authority In 1772, Massachusetts Governor Thomas Hutchinson announced that he and his judges would no longer need their salaries paid by the Massachusetts legislature, because the Crown would henceforth assume payment drawn from customs revenues. Boston Radicals protested and asked Adams to explain their objections. In two replies of the Massachusetts House of Representatives to Governor Hutchinson, Adams argued that the colonists had never been under the sovereignty of Parliament. Their original charter was with the person of the King, and their allegiance was only to him. If a workable line could not be drawn between parliamentary sovereignty and the total independence of the colonies, he continued, the colonies would have no other choice but to choose independence. In Novangelis, or A History of the Dispute with America, from its origin in 1754 to the present time, Adams attacked some essays by Daniel Leonard that defended Hutchinson's arguments for the absolute authority of Parliament over the colonies. In Evangelists, Adams gave a point-by-point refutation of Leonard's essays, and then provided one of the most extensive and learned arguments made by the colonists against British imperial policy. It was a systematic attempt by Adams to describe the origins, nature, and jurisdiction of the unwritten British Constitution. Adams used his wide knowledge of English and colonial legal history to show the provincial legislators were fully sovereign over their own internal affairs and that the colonies were connected to Great Britain only through the king. Continental Congress Massachusetts sent Adams to the First and Second Continental Congresses in 1774 and from 1775 to 1778. In June 1775, with a view of promoting the union of the colonies, he nominated George Washington of Virginia as Commander-in-Chief of the Army then assembled around Boston. His influence in Congress was great. And almost from the beginning, he sought permanent separation from Britain. On May 15, 1776, the Continental Congress, in response to escalating hostilities which had commenced 13 months earlier at the Battles of Lexington and Concord, urged that the colonies begin constructing their own constitutions, a precursor to becoming independent states. Today, The Declaration of Independence is remembered as the Great Revolutionary Act, but Adams and most of his contemporaries saw the Declaration as a mere formality. The resolution to draft independent constitutions was, as Adams put it, independence itself. Over the next decade, Americans from every state gathered and deliberated on new governing documents. As radical as it was to actually write constitutions, prior conventions suggested that the society's form of government needn't be codified, nor should its organic law be written down in a single document. What was equally radical was the nature of American political thought, as the summer of 1776 dawned. Thoughts on Government At that time, several congressmen turned to Adams for advice about framing new governments. Adams, tired of repeating the same thing, and published the pamphlet Thoughts on Government, which was subsequently influential in writing many state constitutions. Many historians argue that Thoughts on Government should be read as an articulation of the classical theory of mixed government— Adams contended that social classes exist in every political society and that a good government must accept that reality. Using the tools of republicanism in the United States, the patriots believed it was corrupt and nefarious aristocrats in the English parliament and stationed in America who were guilty of the British assault on American liberty. Unlike others, Adams thought that the definition of a republic had to do with its ends rather than its means. He wrote in Thoughts on Government, There is no good government but what is republican, that the only valuable part of the British Constitution is so because the very definition of a republic is an empire of laws and not of men. Thoughts on Government Defended bicameralism for a single assembly is liable to all the vices, follies, and frailties of an individual. He also suggested that the executive should be independent. Thoughts on government was enormously influential and was referenced as an authority in every state constitution writing hall. Declaration of Independence On June 7, 1776, Adams seconded the resolution introduced by Richard Henry Lee that these colonies are and have a right ought to be free and independent states, acting as a champion of these resolutions before the Congress until their adoption on July second, seventeen 1776. He was appointed on a committee with Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, Robert R. Livingston and Roger Sherman, to draft a Declaration of Independence. Although that document was largely drafted by Jefferson, Adams occupied the foremost place in the debate on its adoption. Many years later, Jefferson hailed Adams as the colossus of that Congress, the great pillar of support to the Declaration of Independence, and its ablest advocate and champion on the floor of the House. In 1777, Adams resigned his seat on the Massachusetts Superior Court to serve as the head of Board of War and Ordnance, as well as many other important committees. Congress twice dispatched Adams to represent the fledgling Union in Europe, first in 1777 and again in 1779. Accompanied by his oldest son, Adams sailed for France aboard the continental Navy frigate Boston on February fifteenth, 1778. Although chased several times by British warships, the only action seen during the voyage was the bloodless capture of a British privateer. His first stay in Europe between April 1, 1778 and June 17, 1779, was largely unproductive, and he returned to his home in Braintree in early August 1779. He was selected in September 1779 to return to France, and left on November 15th aboard the French frigate Sensible, following the conclusion of the Massachusetts Constitutional Convention. On the second trip, Adams was appointed as Minister Plenipotentiary, charged with the mission of negotiating a treaty of peace and a treaty of commerce with Great Britain. The French government, however, did not approve of Adams' appointment, and subsequently, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, John Jay, and Henry Lawrence were appointed to cooperate with Adams. In the event, Jay, Adams, and Franklin played the major part of the negotiations. Overruling Franklin, Jay and Adams decided not to consult with France. Instead, they dealt directly with the British commissioners. The American negotiators were able to secure a favorable treaty, which gave Americans ownership of all lands east of the Mississippi, except Florida, which was transferred to Spain as its reward. The treaty was signed on November thirtieth, 1782. After these negotiations began, Adams had spent some time as the ambassador in the Netherlands, then the only other well-functioning republic in the world. In October 1782, he negotiated with the Dutch a Treaty of Amity and Commerce, the first such treaty between the United States and a foreign power following the 1778 Treaty with France. The house that Adams purchased during this stay in the Netherlands became the first American embassy on foreign soil anywhere in the world. In 1785, John Adams was appointed the first American minister to the court of St. James, ambassador to Great Britain. When he was presented to his former sovereign, George III, the king intimated that he was aware of Adams' lack of confidence in the French government. Adams admitted this, stating, "'I must avow to your majesty that I have no attachment but to my own country.'" Queen Elizabeth II of Great Britain referred to this episode in July 7, 1976, at the White House. She said, "John Adams, America's first ambassador, said to my ancestor King George III that it was his desire to help with the restoration of the old good nature and the old good humor between our peoples. That restoration has long been made." and the links of language, tradition, and personal contact have maintained it. Adams returned to the United States in 1788 to continue his domestic political life. Constitutional Ideas Massachusetts' new constitution, ratified in 1780 and written largely by Adams himself, structured its government mostly on his views of politics and society. It was the first constitution written by a special committee and ratified by the people. Vice Presidency While Washington was the unanimous choice for president, Adams came in second in the electoral college and became vice president in the presidential election of 1789. He played a minor role in the politics of the early 1790s and was re-elected in 1792. Washington never asked Adams for input on policy and legal issues during his tenure as vice president. Adams' main task while in office was presiding over the Senate. Subsequent vice presidents were also generally not powerful or significant members of their presidential administrations until after the Second World War. In the first year of Washington's administration, Adams became deeply involved in a month-long Senate controversy over what the official title of the president would be. Adams favored grandiose titles such as His Majesty the President, or his high mightiness over the simple President of the United States, which eventually won the debate. The pomposity of his stance, along with his being overweight, led to Adams earning the nickname His Rotundity. As President of the Senate, Adams cast 29 tie-breaking votes, a record that only John C. Calhoun came close to tying with 28 His votes protected the president's sole authority over the removal of appointees and influenced the location of the national capital. On at least one occasion, he persuaded senators to vote against legislation that he opposed, and he frequently lectured the Senate on procedural and policy matters. Adams' political views and his active role in the Senate made him a natural target for critics of the Washington administration. Toward the end of his first term, as a result of a threatened resolution that would have silenced him except for procedural and policy matters, he began to exercise more restraint. When the two political parties formed, he joined the Federalist Party, but never got on well with its leader, Alexander Hamilton. Because of Adams' seniority and the need for a northern president, He was elected as the Federalist nominee for president in 1796 over Thomas Jefferson, the leader of the opposition Democratic-Republican Party. His success was due to peace and prosperity. Washington and Hamilton had averted war with Britain with the Jay Treaty of 1795. Adams' two terms as vice president were frustrating experiences for a man of his vigor, intellect, and vanity, He complained to his wife Abigail, My country has in its wisdom contrived for me the most insignificant office that ever the invention of man contrived or his imagination conceived. Election of 1796 During the presidential campaign of 1796, Adams was the presidential candidate of the Federalist Party and Thomas Pinckney, the governor of South Carolina, his running mate. The Federalists wanted Adams as their presidential candidate to crush Thomas Jefferson's bid. Most Federalists would have preferred Hamilton to be a candidate. Although Hamilton and his followers supported Adams, they also held a grudge against him. They did consider him to be the lesser of two evils. However, They thought Adams lacked the seriousness and popularity that had caused Washington to be successful and also feared that Adams was too vain, opinionated, unpredictable, and stubborn to follow their directions. Adams' opponents were former Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson of Virginia, who was joined by Senator Aaron Burr of New York on the Democratic-Republican ticket. As was customary, Adams stayed in his hometown of Quincy rather than actively campaign for the presidency. He wanted to stay out of what he called the silly and wicked game. His party, however, campaigned for him while the Republicans campaigned for Jefferson. It was expected that Adams would dominate the votes in New England while Jefferson was expected to win in the southern states. In the end. Adams won the election by a narrow margin of 71 electoral votes, to 68 for Jefferson, who became the vice president. Presidency 1797-1801 When Adams entered office, he realized that he needed to protect Washington's policy of staying out of the French and British War. Because the French helped secure American independence from Britain, they had greater popularity with America. After the Jay Treaty, the French became angry and began seizing American merchant ships that were trading with the British. Adams sent a commission to negotiate an understanding with France. However, Adams urged the Congress to augment the Navy and Army in case of diplomatic failure. Domestic Policies as President, Adams followed Washington's lead in making the presidency the example of Republican values and stressing civic virtue. He was never implicated in any scandal. Some historians consider his worst mistake to be keeping the old cabinet, which was controlled by Hamilton, instead of installing his own people, confirming Adams' own admission that he was a poor politician because he was, unpracticed in intrigues for power. Yet there are those historians who feel that Adams' retention of Washington's cabinet was a statesmanlike step to soothe worries about an orderly succession. As Adams himself explained, I had then no particular object of any of them that would soon change. Adams' combative spirit did not always lend itself to presidential decorum, as Adams himself admitted in his old age. As president, I refused to suffer in silence. I sighed, sobbed, and groaned, and sometimes screeched and screamed. And I must confess to my shame and sorrow that I sometimes swore. Adams' four years as president from 1797 to 1801 were marked by intense disputes over foreign policy. Britain and France were at war. Adams and the Federalists favored Britain, while Jefferson and the Democratic-Republicans favored France. An undeclared naval war between the U.S. and France, called the Quasi-War, broke out in 1798. The humiliation of the X-Y-Z affair, in which the French demanded huge bribes before any discussion could begin, led to serious threats of full-scale war with France and embarrassed the Jeffersonians, who were friends to France. The Federalists built up the army under George Washington and Alexander Hamilton, built warships such as the USS Constitution, and raised taxes. They cracked down on political immigrants and domestic opponents with the Alien and Sedition Acts, which were signed by Adams in 1798. These acts were composed of four separate and distinct units. The Naturalization Act, passed on June 18th. The Alien Act, passed on June 24th. The Alien Enemies Act, passed on July 6th. The Sedition Act, passed on July 14th. These four acts were brought about to suppress Republican opposition. The Naturalization Act, doubled the period required to naturalize the foreign-born to American citizenship to 14 years. Since most immigrants voted Republican, they thought by initiating this act it would decrease the proportion of people who voted Republican. The Alien Friends Act and the Alien Enemies Act allowed the president to deport any foreigner he thought was dangerous to the country. The Sedition Act, criminalized anyone who publicly criticized the federal government. Adams had not designed or promoted any of these acts, but he did sign them into law. Those acts and the high-profile prosecution of a number of newspaper editors and one congressman by the Federalists became highly controversial. Some historians have noted that the Alien and Sedition Acts were relatively rarely enforced as only ten convictions under the Sedition Act have been identified, and as Adams never signed a deportation order, and that the furor over the Alien and Sedition Acts was mainly stirred up by the Democratic-Republicans. However, other historians emphasize that the Acts were highly controversial from the outset, resulting in many aliens leaving the country voluntarily, and created an atmosphere where opposing the Federalists, even on the floor of Congress, could and did result in prosecution. The election of 1800 became a bitter and volatile battle, with each side expressing extraordinary fear of the other party and its policies. The deep division in the Federalist Party came on the army issue. Adams was forced to name Washington as commander of the new army, and Washington demanded that Hamilton be given the second position. Adams reluctantly gave in. Major General Hamilton virtually took control of the War Department. The rift between Adams and the High Federalists grew wider. The High Federalists refused to consult Adams over the key legislation of 1798. They changed the defense measures which he had called for, demanded that Hamilton control the army and refused to recognize the necessity of giving key Democratic-Republicans, like Aaron Burr, senior positions in the Army, which Adams wanted to do in order to gain some Democratic-Republican support. By building a large standing army, the High Federalists raised popular alarms and played into the hands of the Democratic-Republicans. They also alienated Adams and his large personal following. They short-sightedly viewed the Federalist Party as their own tool, and ignored the need to pull together the entire nation in the face of war with France. For long stretches, Adams withdrew to his home in Massachusetts. In February 1799, Adams stunned the country by sending diplomat William Vance Murray on a peace mission to France. Napoleon, realizing the animosity of the United States was doing no good, signaled his readiness for friendly relations. The Treaty of Alliance of 1778 was superseded, and the United States could now be free of foreign entanglements, as Washington advised in his own farewell letter. Adams avoided war, but deeply split his own party in the process he brought in John Marshall as Secretary of State and demobilized the emergency army. Re-election Campaign, 1800 The death of Washington in 1799 weakened the Federalists as they lost the one man who symbolized and united the party. In the presidential election of 1800, Adams and his running mate, Charles Coatsworthy Pinckney, went against the Republican duo of Jefferson and Burr. Hamilton tried his hardest to sabotage Adams' campaign in hopes of boosting Pinckney's chances of winning the presidency. In the end, Adams lost narrowly to Jefferson by 65 to 73 electoral votes. Among the causes of his defeat was distrust of him by high Federalists led by Hamilton, the popular disapproval of the Alien and Sedition Acts, the popularity of his opponent, Thomas Jefferson, and the effective politicking of Aaron Burr in New York State, where the legislature, which selected the Electoral College, shifted from Federalist to Republican on the basis of a few wards in New York City controlled by Burr's machine. Midnight Judges As his term was expiring, Adams appointed a series of judges, called the Midnight Judges, because most of them were formally appointed days before the presidential term expired. Most of the judges were eventually unseated when the Jeffersonians abolished their offices. But John Marshall remained, and his long tenure as Chief Justice of the United States represents the most lasting influence of the Federalists as Marshall refashioned the Constitution into a nationalizing force and established the judicial branch as the equal of the executive and legislative branches. Post-Presidency Following his 1800 defeat, Adams retired into private life. Depressed when he left office, he did not attend Jefferson's inauguration. He went back to farming in the Quincy area. In 1812, Adams reconciled with Jefferson. Their mutual friend, Benjamin Rush, who had been corresponding with both, encouraged Adams to reach out to Jefferson. Adams sent a brief note to Jefferson, which resulted in a resumption of their friendship. Their letters are rich in insight into both the period and the minds of the two presidents and revolutionary leaders. Their correspondence lasted 14 years and consisted of 158 letters. It was in these years that the two men discussed natural aristocracy. Jefferson said that the natural aristocracy I consider as the most precious gift of nature for the instruction, the trusts, and government of society. And indeed it would have been inconsistent in creation to have formed man for the social state, and not to have provided virtue and wisdom enough to manage the concerns of society. May we not even say that the form of government is best, which provides most effectually for a pure selection of those natural aristoi into the offices of government? Adams wondered if it ever would be so clear who those people were. Your distinction between natural and artificial aristocracy does not appear to me well-founded. Birth and wealth are conferred on some men as imperiously by nature as genius, strength, or beauty. When aristocracies are established by human laws and honor, wealth, and power are made hereditary by municipal laws and political institutions, then I acknowledge artificial aristocracy to commence. It would always be true, Adams argued, that fate would bestow influence on some men for reasons other than true wisdom and virtue. That being the way of nature, he thought such talents were natural. A good government, therefore, had to account for that reality. Sixteen months before his death, his son, John Quincy Adams, became the sixth president of the United States, 1825 to 1829, the only son of a former president to hold the office until George W. Bush in 2001. His daughter Abigail, Nabby, was married to Congressman William Stephen Smith. She died of cancer in 1813. His son Charles died as an alcoholic in 1800. Abigail, his wife, died of typhoid on October 28, 1818. His son Thomas and his family lived with Adams and Louisa Smith, Abigail's niece by her brother William, to the end of Adam's life. Death On July 4th, 1826, the 50th anniversary of the adoption of the Declaration of Independence, Adams died at his home in Quincy. His last words are often quoted as, "'Thomas Jefferson survives.'" Only the words Thomas Jefferson were clearly intelligible. However, Adams was unaware that Jefferson, his compatriot in their quest for independence, then great political rival, then later friend and correspondent, had died a few hours earlier on the very same day. His crypt lies at United First Parish Church, also known as the Church of the Presidents, in Quincy. Until his record was broken by Ronald Reagan in 2001, he was the nation's longest-living president, 90 years, 247 days, maintaining that record for 175 years. The record is currently held by former President Gerald Ford, who served less than one term and who died December 26, 2006, at 93 years 165 days. John Adams remains the longest live person ever elected to both of the highest offices in the United States. Religious Views Adams was raised a Congregationalist, becoming a Unitarian at a time when most of the Congregational churches around Boston were turning to Unitarianism. Everett argues that Adams was not a deist, but he used deistic terms in his speeches and writing. He believed in the essential goodness of the creation, but did not believe in the divinity of Christ or that God intervened in the affairs of individuals. Although not anti-clerical, he advocated the separation of church and state. He also believed that regular church service was beneficial to man's moral sense. Everett concludes that Adams strove for a religion based on a common-sense sort of reasonableness and maintained that religion must change and evolve toward perfection. Adams often railed against what he saw as overclaiming of authority by the Catholic Church. In 1796, Adams denounced the deism of political opponent Thomas Paine, saying, The Christian religion is above all the religions that ever prevailed or existed in ancient or modern times, the religion of wisdom, virtue, equity, and humanity. Let the blackguard pain say what he will. The Unitarian Universalist Historical Society shed some light on Adams' religious beliefs. They point out that Adams was clearly no atheist by quoting from his letter to Benjamin Rush, an early promoter of universalist thought. I have attended public worship in all countries and with all sects, and believe them all much better than no religion, though I have not thought myself obliged to believe all I heard. Society also relates how Rush reconciled Adams to his former friend Thomas Jefferson in 1812 after many bitter political battles. This resulted in correspondence between Adams and Jefferson about many topics, including philosophy and religion. In one of these communications, Adams told Jefferson, The Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount contain my religion. In another letter, Adams reveals his sincere devotion to God. My adoration of the author of the universe is too profound and too sincere. The love of God and His creation, delight, joy, triumph, exaltation in my own existence, though but an atom, a molecule organic in the universe, are my religion. He continues by revealing his universalist sympathies, rejection of orthodox Christian dogma, and his personal belief that he was a true Christian for not accepting such dogma. Howl, snarl, bite, ye Calvinistic you Athanasian divines, if you will, ye will say, I am no Christian. I say, ye are no Christians, and there the account is balanced. Yet I believe all the honest men among you are Christians in my sense of the word. The Society also demonstrates that Adam's rejected Orthodox Christian doctrines of the Trinity, predestination, it equated human understanding and the human conscience to celestial communication of personal revelation from God. It is also shown that Adams held a strong conviction in life after death or otherwise. As he explained, you might be ashamed of your maker.